0: Hi, this is Alan K. Rohde, author and film historian, and you are listening to Tim Millard's podcast, The Extras. Hello
1: and welcome to a special Christmas edition of The Extras. I'm Tim Millard, your host. Today, Warner Brothers executive and film historian George Feltenstein and animation historian Jerry Beck take us through a nostalgic walk down memory lane as they talk about early theatrical Christmas animation and the development of the first Christmas holiday television specials. Well, Jerry and George, it's the most wonderful time of year, the Christmas holiday. So I'm glad we could get together to talk about some of uh, our favorite Christmas animation specials. So, George, why don't you start us off? How far do we go back in film history to find the first animated Christmas films?
2: Well, I, I think actually I wouldn't have the best answer for that. I think Jerry would. <laughs> Jerry, can you think <laughs> of like an uh, early Christmas cartoon, like prior to uh, oh, uh where I, Santa yeah. Claus lives? Oh, that's pretty early. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I
0: really don't early know. 30s. Yeah. That's early thirties. I'm sure there's some silent ones, but I can't think of any this minute. I I'm, I'm not, it's not my expertise, but you know, yeah. Shanty where Santa Claus lives. Uh, There's a night before Christmas that Disney did as a silent, uh, excuse me, as a silly symphony. They did a couple of uh, silly symphonies that took place in like toy shops, you know, and toys come to life, that kind of thing. As MGM did as well. Right. Toyland broadcast. And, but you know, they didn't do it as often as, as, as people think the fact that we have, you know, Christmas specials that are constantly rerun and we're in heavy production in the sixties and seventies and eighties. Um, That wasn't a big thing back in the old theatrical days, you know, for some unknown reason. They made Christmas and uh, holiday cartoons, but not as many as one would think. Um, All the studios did, you know, Fleischer did uh, Christmas Comes But Once a Year. Columbia Pictures did that uh, Little Match Girl film. Uh, but it's, they're like few and far between. I can't really think of them doing it on a consistent basis. Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, there's just a couple that uh, that have any kind of Christmas reference. You know, gift. I have a theory. Same. yeah. I you talking about Sandy Claus? Uh, no, no, no. Well, that's got the
2: title is uh, obviously a Christmas. I don't think that's a Christmas cartoon. Am I wrong? No. I'll have to look no, that up. That's what I'm saying. I don't even know. I'm trying to remember because in in putting together compilations, it was almost impossible to find, you know, like to do a Christmas Looney Tunes without relying on those like later TV specials or, but I have a theory as to why there were not an abundance of theatrical Christmas cartoons from the major animation studios And that is that they could really only market them during a very, very limited time of the year, whereas any other cartoon that wasn't seasonal could be used all year. And that's just a theory. It's not based on any fact. It's just a belief. It's probably the case. Um, You know, uh,
0: something I always talk about and remind people of is that these cartoons were Uh, I love this word ephemeral. They were just of that moment. They weren't meant or thought of to be evergreen or to be rerun or that that they didn't even know that there would be television and streaming and Blu-rays. And so they, they were of, that's why they were more topical in the 1930s and forties. You know, the cartoons are, you know, uh, they're, they're like the newspaper comic strips and you, you see them now. And then, and then they're garbage in a way. I, I don't mean that, but you know what I mean? They, they're, they're, they're yesterday's news. Uh, in a way, that was the thinking back in the 30s. They they were there. They were expected to be there. Cartoons, cartoons were expected to be at the theater for every new change of bill. Just as we expect Blondie in the LA Times every day. You know, it's there. There's a new one, and then tomorrow comes. So the Christmas ones came out for a special time during the year. And then sometimes they'd make cartoons. Oh, by the way, I just remembered the Captain's Christmas, the Captain and the Kid's uh, MGM uh, Christmas cartoon, which is really good. But most of the time they would come up with something that was Christmas-y, not really Christmas. Like um, I keep thinking of Ub Iwerks, The Brave Tin Soldier was marketed as a, t- a Christmas cartoon, but it really, it, you can show it all year long. It's it's the that, that famous story about the little tin soldiers, you know. Uh, Jack Frost, another Ub Iwerks. Uh, again, not necessarily Christmas, But uh, but it was, uh, you know, came out at that time of year. So uh, the the early ones, you know, Christmas specials are a thing that uh, came to be with television, you know, obviously. And uh, the Flintstones pioneered being in prime time. And then following that were uh, three or four almost in a row on on an annual basis. You've got uh, the famous Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the uh, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, how the Grinch stole Christmas. And there's probably a few more I'm leaving out, but there was literally a hundred more or more, you know, that they made in the next 15 years. You know, Garfield, every, every character you can think of had a Christmas special. Um, But although I want to say, George will agree with me on this, that our favorite Christmas special, and I speak for George when I say this, our favorite Christmas special is uh, Channel 11's Yule Log.
2: Yes, I I would have to agree. Eulog used to make me crack up as a little kid because I thought it was so ridiculous, and it was a loop, like a sixteen millimeter loop of a log burning, and with and so the film dirt and the splices, and would get worse every year as the film got older, and then it started fading. And they're playing all this Christmas music. And then I move out to Los Angeles and I find out that the, this was when uh Channel 11 in New York was owned by the same people that own Channel 5 out here in Los Angeles. And I found out, found out that uh-huh. the Yule Log was not consigned to just New York, but that <laughs> LA had it too. Uh, they just didn't have snow like we did growing up in New York. <laughs> I but, keep imagining
0: um, that. Uh, I, I think somebody should make a short about the filming of the Yule log. You know, they have to set up all day, they have to get it all right. You know, they, they have to now film it for like 20 minutes or something, you know. Well, now they have know. it but on to YouTube. Me there's a there's –
2: it's, it's a whole other thing. But it just oh, the. Yeah. I, I was a very cynical uh youngster and I loved and still do love Christmas, but the Yule log just seemed to be a little bit over the top. <laughs> now it's just you know, it's a lot of people think it's funny. So anyway, um we're we're here today to talk about really the television medium gave birth to the phenomenon. I think it's its own phenomenon of the Christmas animated programming. And I don't think it really was ever contemplated. And Jerry, I'd like your thoughts on this, but I think the first animated Christmas program of note was Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol.
0: I think you are absolutely right about that. And it's a special little film too, because it's an unique, it's unique and odd. And yet I think you, like me, we really liked that short. I mean, that film, it was TV special. It was, uh, Magoo was being, you know, the ghosts were coming for him. He saw his death. I mean, it was kind of a traumatic experience watching that
2: when I was a kid. Oh, it's there. There's some very dark, Moments of that. And basically, they the show starts with Magoo trying to get through New York traffic. Of course, we love seeing him in the car. But Magoo trying to get through New York traffic <laughs> to get to the theater so that he can do a Christmas carol. And he sings, it's great to be back on Broadway. And that whole big opening number. Sure. I I remember seeing this. I was so little, but I loved, you know, I loved everything related to the musical theater and the fact that, you know, they were doing like <laughs> fake marquees and the whole design of it. Yeah. And I was already a Mr. Magoo fan, but, you know, right. as it, it ran, if I recall correctly, on NBC throughout the 60s. I think it was yeah. regularly broadcast on NBC, if I remember correctly. And I was paying attention to those I think right. at a sickly young yeah. age. But uh,
1: 1962, is right. when it first aired on you NBC. Know, and I,
2: I didn't know at the time, I wasn't that precocious that I knew that Julie Stein and Bob Merrill had written the score or who they were. But with by the time I was four or five, I did. Um, but that is really a wonderful score. And I think there's a record album now, like a soundtrack album came out in the era of the yeah. CD, but there was never an album of the music from that show. And I remember as a little kid who loved <laughs> that kind of thing, being very upset that there wasn't a soundtrack album or if there was, it certainly wasn't anything I ever found in the record store, but you had, it was an odd, go ahead. As you had wonderful performers, you know, Jack Cassidy uh, did the voice of Bob Cratchit and Jim Backus was fantastic. And there's the most memorable point of that program was when the Scrooge character has a, you know, going back in time, sees himself as a child and he sings, I'm all alone in the world. And Mm. it was just devastating. It was so sad. And recently (laughs) I went to see a really not, Good, I'm being kind here. Community theater production of A Christmas Carol that was basically using the music from the 1970 Albert Finney film Scrooge. But they Hmm. decided to interpolate, you know, who cares about copyright? They decided to interpolate that one song from Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Hmm. And I thought, okay, I had to sit, a family member was in the show So I had to sit through it. I don't want to be mean about community theater, but I was impressed that whoever put this together had the smarts, even if they weren't following the law, uh, they had the smarts to put that song in because it was such a beautiful, moving thing, but it was created for an animated cartoon. Yeah. I mean, um, i 've got a
0: couple of really ridiculously trivial comments um <laughs> i a, i George has his opinions i have my i have the color commentary as they say no that that was uh, obviously produced in the in the first years of nineteen uh, the sixties when uh u p a had just been bought by uh, Hank Sapperstein. Uh, it isn't, was no longer the company it was in the 1950s, which was a very innovative, you know, animation studio. And now they were basically Mr. Magoo and Godzilla movies and things like that. And, uh, they were very ambitious though in the early sixties. That's the same period of time when they did gay Paris. And, um, the, the fact that they went out and got, you know, uh, Julie Stein, I mean, the fact that they got those songwriters and that kind of writer, the fact that they made this special, and couched it in a way where Mr. Magoo is a person, a star, and we're putting him in this play. I'm not even sure why they did that, because they've already done some period pieces with Magoo as it is. But uh, when I came out here and I was working in the, uh, this is in the, uh, oh gosh, late 80s, uh, I was working in film distribution, and I had to do a lot of stuff through, oh gosh, the studio, that the lab that was on Highland, is it consolidated? Maybe not. It was, it was one of those. It was a famous. Crest. Film. Lab. Crest. Don't laboratory. You know, I don't know if you know where I'm even going with this. And, no, I don't. Uh, the guy at the. at the. Oh, you're going to like this. Did you ever have to deal
2: with Crest yourself? Uh, Crest was a customer of ours when I was employed by MGM UA Home Video. So okay. Okay. Oh, I should the say end, they were a okay. vendor and of so, ours. Right. And so.
0: Did you ever deal with a guy at the front who uh, was like their customer rep, a guy named Lee Orgel or Lee Orgel? No. Lee Orgel. Does that ring no. any bells?
2: Okay. No. He was at the front I was not involved, that involved in that whole part guy. of the business at the time. All right. Well, listen to this. <laughs> uh,
0: Lee Orgel was the guy I had to deal with him because I was doing the Japanese animation and we were duplicating prints, film prints from the negatives. And uh uh Lee was great. We went out to lunch, we hung out. He was this old guy. He really and I don't mean to see, he's now gone. I'm so sad to say, but he really was uh he had an older look to him. He looked like an old guy and um the nice guy, sweet as anything. Um we went out to lunch once and I don't know why I didn't know this. We didn't have IMDb at hand back then. Uh I was just chatting with him. And we start, I start asking about his career, you know, in, in the biz. And for all I know, he's a guy who's just a customer rep at Crest. Oh, it turned out. Oh my goodness. He, he was the producer of Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. His name is on like the Dick Tracy cartoons. He was wow. like, the guy. he was like Saperstein's production guy. Get ready for this one, George. Then after after he left that, I can't say what his whole career is. I can't remember anymore. He started doing screenwriting, and he wrote. And it popped in my head the minute I started asking him questions. He wrote that first episode of the Catwoman on Batman sixty six. Julie Newmar, the very first one. I think it's the one with Leslie Gore. Um, oh, oh, oh uh, I don't remember that well. I can see his name now written by Lee Orgel. I can see it. And, and I'm like, I was like, Holy sh! I mean, I couldn't believe. And he's, you know, this is the end of his, his, you know, his, his, you know, uh, retirement years. He was being a rep for crest uh, you know, in the 1980s anyway. Uh, but he was a great guy. He was telling me about Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. And from his point of view, he ran the show, you know, he was basically the one of the producers he got, the the songwriters, the script together. He was there when they uh, recorded everything and uh, he knew all about it. So I, you know, I'll leave it at that.
2: Well, I, oh. I happen to also know about him that he didn't get credit for it, but he was the producer of Crusader Rabbit.
0: Oh, I wish I knew that. What was funny was I think one of the reasons he took a liking to me was uh I, I was talking about animation all the time i you know, you know and he, it, so I, think, I think why would he i mean maybe he was taking me out to get more business or something but but uh this animation thing was like our link and uh uh you know uh, the most interesting people you know somehow were involved in animation no matter what they're doing later years
2: the other thing i remember about that sh- that show was that it was sponsored by timex timex oh, yeah. watches and you know the thing is that this is what we'll, we'll be talking about other shows and other sponsors. Um, it was very often a product that would put up the money for these shows to be produced on the networks. And sponsors yep. were providing the coin. And uh, this show, I think, was really forgotten about for many years and then in the last I'd say 10 or 15 years it resurfaced on on video and and whatnot but it doesn't have the cachet that some of the other things we're about to talk about have that made such an impact on people's lives and never left Christmas programming the next one that I was going to talk about was Animation of a different sort, and that's animated puppetry. And if I have my year correct, I think I do. It was NBC that had Rankin and Bass's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in 1964. And I think that was the Mm -hmm. next big children's Christmas special. So big that they, like Charlie Brown that we'll talk about, they never stopped rerunning
0: it since then. It's
2: always been on. It there, I don't think it had one year. The only thing that changed was that it moved from NBC to CBS. That's the only thing. Mm. Um, yeah. you know, uh, I remember taking the NBC tour as a child, uh, with my parents and they had the puppets, uh, that were wow. used in the special behind a glass case. Uh, and they showed right. them and the one character that wasn't in the, in the case was the abominable snowman because he was so much larger than all the other puppets. Hmm. But that show, uh, you know, it was, uh, the score was all written by, uh, Johnny Marks who wrote Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which I think it was a hit in the late 40s. And there was a cartoon. Right. Which, Jerry, you might know the aegis of that cartoon. I've never known how it came to be or what, you know, it wasn't studio related. Um, but there, mm-hmm. well, this I'll Rudolph on the red the Ring Yeah, I mean, that, that was a massive success. And I recall that being sponsored by Norelco. And the, having the razors going Definitely. down the snowy hills with the characters from the show. Yep. Right. Yep. I love that. But I, uh, I really Johnny wanted to buy a, electric all of the songs, all of the songs for that show. And, uh, you know, I don't know what he ever did after that. I'm sure other people out there do, but I don't. Um, um, but I wanted an album of that and there was an album of it. But I didn't get it until I was probably in my twenties or thirties, and I found a used record store. It was out on Decca Records <laughs> with Burl Ives. Hmm. That's so, a classic score, and his
0: uh, yeah. some of his
2: songs are
0: classic, you know, Christmas classics.
2: And we, uh, uh, yeah, Rankin and Bass went on to do many other things, but I think that was their first big success. Am I not correct about that? Yeah, they did two things. Uh, again, I'm doing this off the top
0: of my did head, they do but two things. Of Oz I think it was before that. Yes, they did. Yeah, I believe so. I believe they did. I could be wrong. I might. Maybe they did it in the following year. But they did. They did the Wizard of Oz. But before that, they did. You'll remember this: the New Adventures of Pinocchio with the. You remember that? That stop motion. Oh yeah, Pinocchio, I have very uh, vague uh, memories of that, but
2: yes, that was a WPIX, WPIX special. Happy. Yes, it was. No, it was a series, believe it or not. I know, but it was a weird little stop motion. It was it was was something unique to WPIX. You know, I remember the series. Uh, You know, these are the the um, things I saw before I went to kindergarten. So we're digging back there, folks.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm. you know, uh, Rudolph Redn like I, like I was saying before. Uh, every eight year old kid wanted a Norelco razor for Christmas. After that, uh, well, get one for dear
2: old dad. Yes,
0: but that's also part of how these uh, specials and uh, things that were in prime time were geared towards adults for the most part, which is uh, another thing. Uh, 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 let's see a little more uh, backstory on some of the things you asked about. Um, obviously, the uh, song Rudolph Redn's Reindeer was a big Hit, I think Gene Autry had the the record on that oh, in I'm the Columbia late 40s. What happened was Rudolph. I don't understand the whole history. I think Rudolph was was based off of, it and it's something to do with like the Montgomery Ward department stores or something like that. Hmm. And and that they sponsored a seven minute cartoon that was done by the Jam Handy Company in Detroit, uh, supervised by Max Fleischer. Oh my! And uh, it's still around. It's, it's PD. So it's all around, but Max Fleischer called in some of his New York animators from the old days and they made this one-off, uh, uh special or it's a, it's a one-off. It's a Christmas cartoon. Like we were fishing for before seven minute cartoon in Technicolor and it was sold as theaters and I, it wasn't distributed by any, any studio. It was just like Montgomery Ward had booked it out. It was like a promotion for them. And, uh, that was the story. Obviously, the, the song became a classic throughout the 1950s. Rankin Bass, uh, e- even today, uh, people, uh, refer to the style of animation there as Rankin Bass style, but Rankin and Bass were two TV executives who got the idea very early on in, uh, in television animation to outsource doing animation. A Wizard of Oz was actually done in Canada and, um, uh, Pinocchio and, uh, Uh, Rudolph were done in Japan. It's actually Japanese animation, if you think about it. It was a little studio in Japan doing funky, you know, very low-cost animation for commercials in Japan, and they made a contract with them, and They did write it here. They did score it here. They did voice it here. They did design the characters. Sometimes Rankin and Bass let the Japanese do it, and some of their stuff has an anime feel to it. But uh, Rudolph was uh, designed by uh, their American crew that they had, New Yorkers. Actually, New Yorkers. Rankin and Bass were located in New York. They got a lot of people who worked on like uh, Underdog and things like that. That was out of New York as well. So um, that's sort of the genesis of of that. And, And like I say, it's. It was the thing that put them on the map and they made insane deals. They had deals for Christmas specials and holiday specials for the next 20 years. You know, they did Easter and New Year's and everything you can think of. Plus they did features, uh, you know, many have fallen away, but features like mad monster party and things like that.
2: Yeah. They (laughs) ended up, uh, they were, I think, sponsored by a company called Videocraft, and uh, I don't know the the corporate, you know, chronology uh, of of them. And I know it's been documented. I know there's like a Rankin Bass expert out there. But oh yeah, uh, I know who they, I know him. In the 1974, goal. they broke yeah. off of these Videocraft people and went on their own and existed on their own uh, for over a decade. And then they ended up getting purchased by Lorimar, who ended up getting purchased by Warner Brothers. So all the Rankin-Bass material from 1974 on is uh, with us. And that's why we have things like Rudolph and Frosty's 4th of July we don't have the original most (laughs) beloved uh, specials that feature those characters, but they kept milking them. And then they went into making some live action films, uh, which were Japanese co-productions. And uh, we did some of them in the Warner Archive. Most recently, the Bermuda Depths. Cool. Do you have the rights to like the The Last Unicorn? That was one of their films. I believe that one we don't have. And the one I think that we think we have, but we haven't been able to find the elements is the Ivory Ape. You know, it's it's very uh which it's the Ivory Ape. Never heard of it. And it's wow. I think it's the yeah. Japanese connection because on the Bermuda Depths and The uh, the Last Dinosaur with Richard Boone, we can't find the original camera negative for The Last Dinosaur. Uh, we put, put both of them out on DVD through the Warner Archive. But with The Bermuda Depths, we were able to, uh, we had the original negative and we did a beautiful Blu-ray, which came out not too long ago. And we want to do the same for The Last Dinosaur. Which has an awesome, uh, end, uh, credit theme song. <laughs> and I'm being uh, a little bit, uh, cynical there. But, um, <laughs> people, when they saw that we put out the Bermuda Depths, they were like, well, where's the last dinosaur? We want that too. So there, there is a faction of Rankin Bass fans, uh, throughout. <laughs> uh the world. Uh you know, they're they're out there. And there's a reason for that because I mean if you think about how many people saw and continue to see Rudolph is now passing its fiftieth, fifty-fifth anniversary. It's it, it will be sixty in three years. You know, just Christmas programming in general, Jerry, you made this very good point, is mostly geared towards adults. And it goes back to the earliest days of television. Uh Minotti wrote this opera, A Mall in the Night Visitors, that was written for NBC. And, you know, that was shown every year. And it was done live until they could record it. Then all of the big stars would have Christmas specials. Every year, Bing Crosby had a Christmas special in the 60s and brought out his second family, you know, cuz he had a second wife after his first wife passed away and um he'd come out every christmas with the annual special right up to his death and the last one he did, uh he did that duet with David Bowie. But um oh, every yeah. every big star had a christmas special and it was the animated ones that have survived and gone on to be perennial broadcast treasures, whereas the, you know, adult specials have faded into obscurity. Um, and some of them are probably lost because television preservation is even worse than film preservation. And uh, right. thankfully, uh, Rudolph the red Nose Reindeer was made on film. And it was restored by it. The irony is that it is now owned by uh, Comcast, Universal, NBC. So the network that originally broadcast it now owns it <laughs> after it going through so many other owners in the meantime. So I don't know if they're still showing it on CBS, but I think it'll probably end up back on NBC at some point. The year after Rudolph was probably, I'd say, one of the most impactful Christmas animated specials. And Jerry, you know what I'm talking about. I think you're talking about Charlie Brown Christmas. Indeed I am. Yeah, a lot of
0: of classic aspects to that one.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, this is timeless. Absolutely timeless, but what it what it did was Peanuts comic strip had been around for fifteen years and was not uh not unknown, but it wasn't hugely popular. And there were there wasn't Peanuts merchandise everywhere. There were these little books that you there were buried in bookstores with compilations of the comic strip, <laughs> but it was basically not a promoted, marketed property. And the idea of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas, I think, Jerry, you'll probably know more. I don't know that much about the prehistory of it, um, you know, like how they approached Charles Scholes. And do you know mm-hmm. how that came to be? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not the
0: you know researching my uh, my references here, but in a nutshell, um, uh, pre Charlie Brown's Christmas, and I don't remember the exact year, early '60s. Remember there was a Tennessee Ernie Ford show? Do you remember that at all?
2: Do you, do you know I, anything about
0: that? It was a week. I, I know
2: about it. I did. I did not ever see it. Okay,
0: the Tennessee Ernie Ford show. We have to look up what what network that was on. A primetime series for whatever reason, uh, was sponsored. Well, they were sponsored by Ford and Ford had some deal with the Peanuts characters. They licensed. It's kind of like how in later years, uh, I forgot what the company was, but there's a metropolitan life. I think it is had a deal with Peanuts. Anyway, the Tennessee Ernie Ford show, they commissioned brand new animation of the Peanuts characters to open up that show every week, different animation weekly of the characters, presenting the Tennessee Ernie Ford show and a little bit of funny little skit with those characters. They'd also appear in the commercials uh, during the show, somehow talking about the cars. That animation was done by Playhouse Pictures, one of the big, uh, one of the studios here in LA, that the director in charge of that was Bill Melendez, who was an ex-UPA, ex-Warner Brothers animator, was working at this Playhouse Pictures. And he honed the, uh, drawing. So it was perfectly Charles Schultz. It looked just like Schultz animated it himself. He had gotten that talent from having worked at UPA where he was in charge of films like, uh, Madeline, you know, where he, he they, they copied the style of the artist, the original artist. That was a new thing back in the UPA in the 1950s. Well, he did that with the Peanuts characters and um, as far as I know, the story was just like with the other ones you said. They had to have a sponsor. I believe they got Coca Cola, and they went to they pitched Coca Cola. When I say they, it was producer Lee Mendelson and uh, I guess uh, Charles Schultz himself. And they had some animation of what it could look like. It looked like the Tennessee Ernie Ford show, and they uh, they had a pitch doing the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. You know, Schultz was the only person after after uh, with Christmas and beyond. He's the only cartoonist creator of a comic strip, whatever, who actually wrote all the episodes of this, all those specials were all written. Bad by Charles I can't think of another case like that in, in this country. Uh, anyway, the, uh, uh, they, they, they got it on the air. There was a lot of objection to it because of the religious content of it, but they ultimately gave in. They thought it was going to be a bomb. Of course it was an overnight rating, bana- you know, gigantic thing. And, uh, I mean, that's how it got there. That's, that's roughly how it got there. And once it was there, it, once again, never left. And of course uh, Schultz uh, obliged by doing specials on obviously the great pumpkin was next and uh, they've done every holiday and they've gone way beyond that. Now I think it was you that no? I forgot how many specials there were like 60 There's some
2: crazy number. Like, that. yeah, it was, it, um, it got but, to the um, point where I lost count, but You know, I remember you. You could run one of the very, very young once a week, seeing that first broadcast and being so blown away. And then, not unlike other kids at the time, wanting peanuts merchandise. And uh, it was interesting because the peanuts merchandising rights were owned by, if my memory is correct, a housewife. Like on the West Coast, and she became incredibly wealthy and held on to those rights as long as she could. Yeah, I know there's a situation like that. I'm not sure if it was. I
0: don't know. I, I'm going to be honest that I don't know that situation. I know that United uh, Features Syndicate, I think, who owns the comic strip, but Schultz made you know he he was cut in on any merchandise. He he made a fortune off oh, of that for sure. And they as. Became like a joke that, you know, you can buy Charlie Brown staplers and and scotch tape dispensers. And I mean, anything you can think of, there was a Peanuts... I still have a Peanuts uh, garbage can in my bathroom that I bought years ago. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was every little thing in the, in the world. And, of course, they appeared on uh, Dolly Madison Cakes labels, uh, which was one of their sponsors as well. Along with Coke, Yeah, there was, there, was a, there was a woman and there was a situation. It has to do with Winnie the Pooh. I may be getting too far afield here, but it was a woman. That's a whole other thing,
2: and we we that doesn't involve us. Oh, okay. But it's not related. I know okay. that – that's a fun story to talk about off the air. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, that, cause that's a situation, like you mentioned, that's where she's like a housewife that happened to have the rights to Winnie the Pooh. There, there was a thing like that. Disney fought her for decades. Uh, I think they finally settled out of court. But anyway, but I but I digress.
2: Well, the year after Charlie Brown Christmas and the phenomenal reception that it had, I have to think that this was probably in the planning stages, uh, even before that. But my, what I'm referring to is the fact that, uh, the very next year, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, of course, was repeated, but it was joined by another news special that, uh, was the byproduct of a longtime friendship, uh, between Chuck Jones, who had not that long ago, moved from the shuttered Warner Brothers animation division to MGM, where he was taking on the task of making new Tom and Jerry cartoons. And as part of that, he was also doing other animation. So with Chuck Jones' arrival at MGM, he had to take on the very unusual task of taking characters that he did not develop, that were well-developed and popularized for decades prior uh, by Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera, and add his own touch to them. But his Tom and Jerry cartoons are more Chuck Jones cartoons than they are necessarily uh, similar to the way we're used to seeing Tom and Jerry. But during his time at MGM, he worked with some of the animators he worked with at Warner Brothers, as well as some other people. And he didn't just do Tom and Jerry. And I know that he made a one-off cartoon that is very near and dear to your heart, Jerry, if I'm... (laughs) Correct my assumption? Uh, well, you are. Um, you're talking about the
0: dot and the line, which uh, Chuck was hungry to make his own cartoons, whatever he was wanted to do. You know, when he was at uh, Warner's, and I know you know these, George, uh, at the very end, in the last few years, he was there. He made an unusual cartoon called High Note. Which uh, which was nominated for an Academy Award? That's the one with uh, musical notes on a staff, you know, almost a precursor to Dot in the Line. And then he made another one called uh, Now Hear This, which is just a bizarro the cartoon about sound effects and a devil's eardrum. And I mean, you, you got He was trying some new things. He was trying to break out a little bit when uh, Warner Brothers uh, closed, when um, Chuck and everybody was let go. Um, you know, he he struck out, he started a studio with somebody else. They got a client, which was MGM, that was desperately looking to do new Tom and Jerry cartoons. And they seem to have a priority. They seem to have a, I don't know this absolutely, but it just seems like they had an agenda that, that has to be an Oscar winning animator. We can't get Hanna-Barbera back there making cartoons and winning Emmys. And, and they just won't come back to work for us anymore. But we, we've got to get an Oscar winner. And that, that didn't quite work out when they, uh, they first got Gene Deitch, uh, you know, a few years earlier. He had won an Oscar for short. And, uh, you know, his cartoons being made in uh, Prague in Europe in, in behind the Iron Curtain weren't exactly what, uh, anybody wanted with, uh, Tom and Jerry. Uh, then they were looking for another person like that. And luckily for them, Chuck Jones was available, but Chuck. Chuck who had created, you know, Coyote and Roadrunner and uh Marvin the Martian and on and on, he wanted to do his thing. He was now doing this like kind of experimental thing, uh you know, uh where he was trying to create up uh, characters, personality animation out of out of things that aren't characters, meaning at Warners, he did that cartoon with the with the musical notes. And here was a perfect thing. He found this book. I happen to have a copy of it, of The Dot and the Line. And they said, this would make a great, I can see this. I can add personalities to The Dot and to The Line. And he got permission from MGM. They funded doing this short. They wanted an Oscar winner. They got an Oscar winning cartoon. The Dot and the Line won for Best Animated Short in 1965. And I believe that opened the door for Chuck to do some more things. He bought the book um, by the, by the same author of the dot and the line, Norton Juster, um, who also did uh, the Phantom Tollbooth. They got the rights to that. And of course, you know, they made a feature of the Phantom Tollbooth. They, I, I I believe, I have to tell you, I don't know the facts, but I believe that uh, he went to Theater Geisel and uh, they then went to, and they pitched it to MGM TV special You know how the Grinch stole Christmas. That was, of of course, it's a classic. It was spectacular. I saw it when it first aired. It was beloved immediately. You know, it was just a fantastic few years for Chuck at MGM. He was one last thing I want to say about Chuck during that period. He was very anti-TV cartoon. He was he didn't like what Hanna Barbera were doing on TV, even though they were being very successful. It wasn't his thing. It wasn't what he thought animation could be. So he was trying his best and he succeeded in maintaining making Chuck Jones cartoons, even after he left Warner's first at MGM. And later on, I mean, and later on through the seventies doing animated specials. And then ultimately uh, in 1975 or six, I think it was, he came back to Warner brothers uh, and continued on from there with Bugs Bunny roadrunner movie and a bunch of animated specials. So Chuck did what he wanted to do despite really the odds being against him during that period
2: yeah and and really the collaboration between Chuck Jones and Dr. Seuss of taking how the Grinch stole Christmas yeah turning it into a television special adding things into the special that were you know the book itself didn't lend itself to a half hour TV special. It was a very short little Dr. Seuss book and Chuck added color figuratively and literally uh-huh. into the story. And he added music by Albert Haig. And, and I believe if I'm correct, and I don't know if I'm, I should know this, especially since I did the soundtrack album, but I think Dr. Seuss wrote the lyrics and Albert Haig wrote the music but um they had an original score and it was planned to broadcast on CBS in December of 1966. And the unusual nature of this is that MGM records had to have a soundtrack album in record stores by Christmas time when that special appeared on CBS in December of 1966. But in order to do that, they actually recorded the songs in a record one of maybe it was radio recorders or one of the uh, re- regular music recording studios not at the mgm lot where they recorded the music for the show with different artists with the exception of thorough ravenscroft who did the unmistakable, uh, Tony the Tiger voice and saying, you're, a, um, we can't sing on podcasts, but you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. And, uh, he actually recorded that twice because the recording made for the album, which said original soundtrack album was actually not a soundtrack album. It was kind of a hybrid because the Boris Karloff narration was the same in both the television special as well as the um, record album, but the music was recorded prior to the special being completed. And the music for the television special was recorded probably about two or three weeks before airtime. I mean, it was that tight. Mm -hmm. I learned all of this uh, when I was working on producing a new, how the Grinch stole Christmas true soundtrack album album, from the original recordings made for the television soundtrack and noticing how different they were and single voices versus choral voices. And, um, it was a, it was an eye opening experience. And it wasn't unusual at the time for a record to be out in the marketplace and say original soundtrack recording when in fact it was a studio re-recording. Another famous example of that is Ben-Hur, a huge selling album uh, with Miklos Rosa recording. They didn't want to have to pay the musicians' union here in the United States, so they recorded it in Italy, where they didn't have to pay the musicians' union oh. fees, but they marketed it as the soundtrack album. Wow. The actual soundtrack recordings didn't come out until the late 90s when we had our Turner Classic Movies music, Rhino Movie music, to Joint Venture. And that was the first legitimate release of the actual soundtrack recordings. So that whole line of recordings was quite successful and quite diverse. And putting an album of Grinch along with a cartoon Chuck would do later that isn't related to Christmas of Horton Hears a Who... The music, uh, and the soundtrack for both of those half hour specials made up the CD that I had worked on. But I think that the How the Grinch Stole Christmas special is more popular than ever. It inspired two subsequent feature films. It inspired a, uh, Broadway musical. Although I don't know if *Susical* the Musical is an adaptation of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I think it's all sorts of things yeah. and was the butt of many jokes because it was not a success. Uh and How the-, the Grinch Stole Christmas was a huge success in the ratings and has never left the air and continues to get remastered and restored as technology improves and... uh It is a perennial, both on broadcast television, cable television, on home entertainment. Everywhere you look, there's How the Grinch Stole Christmas.
0: And uh, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, is a perennial song. Uh, Right now, I've got Sirius XM in my car with the holiday favorites, and I hear it. They still play it all the time. So, I mean... Uh, it's, and by the way, a lot of stuff from the, uh, from these classics, the Charlie Brown Christmas music is also a perennial, uh, all of, all, you know, all, pretty much all the show, all of the uh, shows we've talked about in this hour, maybe except for Magoo. I can't think of a song from Magoo, uh, that you didn't sing already that, uh, that, that I hear repeated, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, Rudolph, uh, you know, and, and Grinch and Charlie Brown, uh, the,
2: the music's lived forever too well and i i think of all of them the most kind of different approach in terms of music everything about a charlie brown christmas was different having the vince garaldi trio that jazz that those original compositions linus and lucy is the mm-hmm. famous theme uh, and christmas time is here and uh uh, the jazz version of oh christmas tree i love that right and uh music is so in, integral in animation music in animation you know that's why we have looney tunes and merry melodies but the way all of these television specials the animated television specials could not have made the impact that they made without their own unique songs and each one of them had different kinds of music. That's kind of remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think that if they ever did a rock and roll animated Christmas special and nothing is coming to mind, but I bet um, I'm wrong. Coming to mind to my mind, but I have a feeling the answer would be yes. Um, they probably did something really awful and tacky in the seventies. Yeah, I can't think think of, I can
0: tell you what it is, (laughs) but I don't remember anything. Was was there a, for example, was there ever like a, let's say an Osmond's animated Christmas special that, you know what I mean? Something like that. No,
2: I I think if they did a Christmas special, it was, it was the real brothers, not their animated uh, versions. Right. Right. Right, I don't think I. I don't think
0: you know what I'm going to go look that up. And next time we do a, no, it's a, it's a fascinating
2: oh. subject. But uh, we could do a whole whole uh, diatribe just on the relationship of music and animation. Absolutely, which is a fascinating subject into and of itself. Because if you think about it, every classic cartoon studio, whether Disney, MGM, Warner Brothers even Paramount, even Terry tunes with their really cheap sounding music. They all had a very, you know, the byproduct of a specific style. Yep. That, uh, it, it's a combination and of the musician and composer.
0: It's a compi- combination of the composer and the, uh, and where they're recording and how, you know, like, you know, are they in a giant stage with X number of musicians or are they in a closet with four musicians like Terry Tunes? Right. But the thing is, there's a, I had once uh, uh, had an opportunity, there was a a Walter Lance cartoon from the, from the uh, thirties. And there was a brief moment when um, the harmonizing studio closed the MGM happy harmonies. And then, as you know, uh, Fred Quimby, they had to reorganize their in-house animation studio of which that's when they started doing Captain and the Kids, and they had problems with uh, Milt Gross doing a few cartoons, and then they brought back Harmon and Ising as employees of MGM. But my point is, during that period of of uh, management shifts and Harmon and Ising leaving and this and that, Scott Bradley, the musician for Harmon and Ising, who would go on to have the rest of his career at MGM doing the cartoons, uh, he was looking around. He was out of work for a few moments or whatever. And and he did a cartoon. He did one cartoon for Walter Lance. It's a black and white cartoon with cats. I don't even know the name of it right now, but I was going through these Walter Lance cartoons and suddenly out of the blue, I hit this black and white cartoon. Oh my God. It sounds like a Tom and Jerry soundtrack. I'm like, what? And then, and it all came, it got me. I realized right there, it's the musician it's the, it's the composer. You know, Scott Bradley, if he goes to another place to do music, it still sounds like Scott Bradley,
2: you know? Well, the great thing about Scott Bradley is, you know, I think about Carl Stalling at Warner Brothers and Scott Bradley at MGM. Totally. They both had this amazing talent, these amazing orchestras, because the Warner Brothers and MGM orchestras would work all day scoring a feature, and during the last hour – of the workday they might have made a pit stop at the bar uh, across <laughs> the street at least at MGM I know they did uh they they would go across the street and have a couple of drinks and come back and record the cartoon I know that because I've listened to the recording sessions <laughs> and the musicians are rowdy as hell on the MGM recordings I uh, have not heard as many of the Warner Brothers cartoon recordings as the MGM recordings But here, the point is that both studios had these massive music libraries, probably more so at Warner Brothers than at MGM because MGM had songs written for MGM movies, whereas Warner Brothers had songs written for Warner Brothers movies in addition to the three biggest music publishers of the prior 30 years before sound hit and all these different uh, popular songs that dated back to the turn of the century all the way to the end of the 20s. Mm-hmm. And so we have, you know, cartoons called like Ain't She Tweet or Ain't She Tweety or, you know, <laughs> uh, you know that are based on some of those songs. And uh, MGM didn't have that same thing. Carl Stalling would find a song that was exactly appropriate to the scene in a cartoon. And he would brilliantly mix it into the score. That was his genius. And, and of course, Scott Bradley equally, what, you know, how many times did he make great use of the trolley song mm-hmm. in an MGM cartoon? <laughs> or the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just oh,
0: off, off to see
2: the wizard. Isn't right. He? always it's uh it's really quite remarkable but um would you say that how the grinch stole christmas was the last landmark animated christmas special or was there another to follow because the ones that followed i think didn't have this humongous impact the way the ones we've just been talking about did. Well,
0: I mean that's certainly a conversation that our listeners would definitely de- want to debate. I mean,
2: there's things like uh, Frosty the Snowman. Uh, well, from- yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Santa Claus is coming to town, Frosty yeah. the Snowman, but they were not as good as Rudolph. You know, the words like Rudolph set the bar so high that nothing Rankin and Bass did after that came close. Well, those,
0: those first ones, those first four that we've been talking about are, are, are it. They're the, they're the, the, the establishment of, of that new uh, what's the right word. I mean, specials were a major thing for at least 15 years. Maybe one could say 25 years. They're still making specials, Christmas specials right now, based on all sorts of things. I just saw the, there's a stop motion elf special based on the movie elf and it's done in the style of Rankin bass. And there's Jim Parsons did The Voice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, there's still good stuff being made, but the impact and the long-lasting, the classicness, if that's a word, uh, of those first four, I mean, that that's, you know, really there's almost nothing else I can think of to add to it.
2: Well, I think that that's why we're here, because we just thought this would be such a good topic to talk about mm-hmm. at this most wonderful time of the year.
1: have enjoyed our Christmas special with George Feltenstein and Jerry Beck as they shared stories about some of the first animated Christmas specials both on film and television you can find links to all of their podcasts on the website at www.theextras.tv and be sure and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast provider so that you don't miss any of their future episodes also follow the show on Facebook or Twitter at The Extras TV or Instagram at theextras.tv to stay up to date on the latest episodes and for exclusive images and behind the scenes information about the episodes and upcoming guests. And if you're enjoying the guests we have on the show, please subscribe and leave us a review at iTunes, Spotify or your favorite podcast provider. Until next time, you've been listening to The Extras with Tim Millard. Stay slightly obsessed. Hi, this is Tim Millard, host of The Extras Podcast, and I wanted to let you know that we have a new private Facebook group for fans of the Warner Archive and Warner Brothers Catalog physical media releases. So if that interests you, you can find the link on our Facebook page or look for the link in the podcast show notes.